From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove invites us on a journey to take a long and careful look at the history of American Christianity and its alliance with power and violence. He invites us to a revolution of values where we can reclaim public faith for the common good. Stay tuned. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's a writer, preacher, and moral activist. He and his wife, Leah, founded the Rutba House, a house of hospitality in Durham, North Carolina. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove directs the School for Conversion, a popular education center in Durham committed to making surprising friendships possible. He's an associate minister at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church. He's the author of several books, most recently, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and his most recent book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thanks so much for having me. Good to talk to you. Well, for my listeners who may be unfamiliar with you and your work, let's talk a little bit initially about your background. You had a conversion experience to Christianity very early. I believe it was around when you were seven years old. Talk to me a little bit about that tradition that you were raised in and what that conversion experience meant to you at that time, and perhaps we can get into what it means to you now. But let's start with with that ancient history. (laughs) Well, I hope it's not too ancient. But I was growing up in the 1980s in the Baptist Church in North Carolina. We were revivalists. I'm still a revivalist. And in that tradition, a personal experience with the Lord and uh, connecting your own life with the story of what God has been doing since since real ancient history, you know, from the beginning of the world, is, uh, is central. So, so yes, I was... Um, absolutely captivated by that story as a young person. I, I did walk the aisle in the Baptist Church. Uh, I walked it on a Sunday night because I was a I was a bit timid at seven years old. I had wanted to that Sunday morning. You know, we went to church twice a day, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. I had wanted to that morning, but I was just too nervous to walk out in front of everybody. And so I talked to my parents about it, you know, over Sunday lunch, and we went back in the evening, and I, I walked the aisle then. But yeah, that personal commitment to Jesus and to the way of Jesus has shaped my whole life, and um, I'm very grateful for the people who raised me in a way that they they taught me that the way that Jesus invites us into is the life that's really life. I've had to learn a lot about what that means. It, 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 uh, uh, my expectations for the way of Jesus have changed over the years, but I'm deeply grateful for that basic commitment to the way of Jesus that my people passed on to me. 
Well, and so when you were thinking about your growing up, you, you talk about kind of the place that you were in and the tradition that you were in. That shaped a certain sense of values and a certain sense of civic commitment. And for my listeners, maybe line out for us a little bit about what those values looked like, what that civic commitment looked like at that time in the 1980s and the early 1990s. Well, when I gave my life to Jesus, all I wanted to do was all that I could, you know, to further God's kingdom in the world. And what I didn't know at that time, but have come to learn, is that there was a whole lot of money, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars that were being invested by corporations in this country and uh, people who make a lot of money off corporations in targeting communities like the one where I was growing up to convince us that our faith meant we had to work for the ends of the Republican Party. And this wasn't just sort of conservative ideology. It was a Republican Party that was increasingly being taken over by a movement called the New Right that was about giving corporate control to the government through the Republican Party. So that's what I've grappled with my whole life. I, I, for the, I think the most sincere reason, and I completely acknowledge that other people do it for the most sincere reasons too, I got deeply involved in radical right politics because I wanted to serve Jesus. And when I did that, I went to Washington, D.C. to work for Strom Thurmond in his office in the Senate. And when I was there, I ran into a wall when I realized that what we were doing in terms of um, padding the budget for defense contractors and deregulating the corporations so they could make more money, uh, even if it would cost uh, consumers and the environment, all sorts of things like that, I began to realize that this is not what the Sunday school teachers had taught me, and that this really didn't have anything to do with the values at the heart of Scripture. It, it was a way that our religion and our religious language had, had been co-opted by a movement that wanted to use religion to justify power, and that was a, a realization that um, that I had, and I, I realized I had to do something about that, so it, it required a real change in my life. Of course, um, you know, having been raised by people who take Jesus and the Bible seriously, I was completely familiar with uh, stories like the one of uh, Saul on the road to Tarsus, you know, when he realizes that in his sincere effort to serve God, he was doing absolutely the wrong thing. And what happens when you have that kind of realization is uh, you have to change course, but you also have to acknowledge that you don't necessarily know how to find the true course. And so, like Saul, who became Paul, found Ananias to show him the way, I had to find some teachers who could teach me another way to be Christian in public life. And I'm very grateful to have have uh, met the Reverend William Barber at that time, and he introduced me to the Black-led Southern Freedom Movement that has really been my teacher now for almost 25 years. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. We're talking about his recent book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Well, I want to definitely talk about your experience with Reverend Dr. William Barber, but before we get there, I would like to take a moment and ask you about what it's like to work in an office, a political office, like the office of Strom Thurmond that you mentioned. What is the day-to-day activity in a politician's office on Capitol Hill like? 
Well, I was at the lowest level, basically doing grunt work, you know, but it was a way to see what all was happening. Of course, he was the pro tem of the Senate at the time, the longest serving member. And so uh, his office was, you know, an administrative center for all sorts of matters in the Senate. That's why I was there. He had the most um, power to point young people to do the paid ship I was doing. But we were both constantly negotiating the bills and policies that came up and the crises that came up that Congress is called upon to respond to. And uh, in the course of doing that, what I began to see is that uh, wealthy people and their lobbyists have incredible access to these spaces, whereas the everyday people who are most impacted really don't. And uh, that imbalance of power began to open my eyes to the way our political system really works. And that's part of my concern about why the the church, particularly white church in America, has been um, manipulated to believe that this is a sort of a, a way of being faithful when, as a matter of fact, uh, the, even the issues that we're told people are there representing are very peripheral. And what is the sort of main day-to-day concern is often how to keep the economy going so that it benefits uh, the people who are making money off of it. Well, and you mentioned that that this is something that has basically been designed and that the Bible and the Bible's narrative has been co-opted towards this purpose, and you just said it, of basically keeping the economy going. And my experience of reading your book, Revolution of Values, is that you very patiently in each chapter go through the various social issues of what were called in the 1990s the culture wars. I believe uh, James Davison Hunter coined that phrase, and you mentioned that in the book. And as you go through each of these kind of culture war issues, you demonstrate the mechanisms by which biblical narratives have been utilized to really undergird and become a foundation for this kind of pro-business, pro-military, pro-rich philosophy. And I want to dig into that as our conversation continues, but help me and help my listeners learn kind of the moment when that started to turn for you. So you're sitting in Strom Thurmond's office and you you're having this increasing doubt about what the activity is there as you're watching basically an open door for these people with great influence and, and great wealth be able to kind of push their policy. Was there a breaking point moment or was it more gradual than that? Well there was. I had a, a religious experience. Uh, I was going to lunch one day in the midst of this, in the midst of sort of you know learning what was happening and grappling with it in my mind and in my spirit. I was going to lunch one day down at the bottom of Capitol Hill there at the, at the Union train station where they have a food court in the, in the basement. And a man sitting outside of Union Station asked me if I could spare some change. And I ignored the man because I had been told what, you know, people like him were really about. We had, you know, conversations about the deserving and the undeserving poor. We had conversations about the danger of enabling people. And all of that was in my mind and had shaped my habits, besides the fact that I thought I was doing incredibly important work and I was in a hurry and I only had so much time. So I just moved on and I ignored this guy who asked me to see his need and to address address it there on the street. And as I was going to reach for the door to go into Union Station, 
I heard Jesus speak to me in the King James Version that I had memorized in, in my home church, you know, in as much as he did not do it unto the least of these, he did not do it unto me. And, well, my people, again, who had um, passed this faith on to me, they, they taught me that when Jesus speaks, you have to listen. And um, I then, and still do, take that quite seriously. So I... This doesn't happen to me every day. I don't. I don't often have um, these sorts of experiences. But I turned around and I went back to uh, this, you know, man who had asked me for some money, and I I gave him some. But, but that was sort of the beginning of an interruption of these narratives that I had in my head and these habits that I was practicing in my life. And it was a chance that I felt like I had to go back and reconsider how I was. Uh, living out this gospel. And uh, so I, I think it was the beginning of the end of my political career, but really the, the opening up of a, uh, of a whole new way of reading the Bible. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's a writer, preacher, and moral activist. He is the associate minister at St. John's Missionary Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. We're talking about a couple of his recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and his most recent book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's a celebrated spiritual writer and sought-after speaker. He's a native of North Carolina and a graduate of Eastern University and Duke Divinity School. We're talking about a couple of his recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, which came out in 2018, and Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Before the break, you were talking about an experience that you had when you were working on Capitol Hill when you, and in your words, you sort of heard the voice of Jesus in King James English as you were ignoring a homeless person, and that moment sparked you to turn around and go back. What was that interaction with the homeless person like for you when you heard that voice? And I understand, as you said in in the description, that this doesn't happen very often, but that sounds like it was a very profound moment. So how did things begin to shift for you after interacting with that homeless person, having had, I guess, an almost mystical experience? Well, it was a mystical experience for me. I I really don't have any idea of what it was for him. I think I gave him a $20 bill, so I suspect he went and got lunch or whatever. We didn't have much of an exchange with one another, but it, it became for me this experience that I couldn't forget. You know, when I woke up the next morning to open my Bible and pray uh, before I went into the office, I couldn't shake this experience. And so it it became a, a touch point for me from which I had to go back and ask again what it was that 
Jesus had actually said, what it was that I had actually taken from the Scriptures. And as I went back and began to read the Scriptures, not just by myself, but increasingly with other people who, like I was talking about earlier, I met Reverend Barber and others who who began to open up the Scriptures for me. And I realized something that seemed so obvious that I hadn't seen it before, which is that the whole Bible is written by and to people who were more like that man who was asking me for money than they were like the senators I was rubbing shoulders with in the hall. That is, poor and marginalized people first heard this message, this story, as good news and preached it to the world as good news for everyone. And so I, I began to see from that perspective that um, that there was a different way of being Christian in public. Well, and you mentioned Reverend Dr. William Barber. He is the head of the re-established Poor People's Campaign. But maybe take a moment and tell us about the first Poor People's Campaign. Who founded it and what was its purpose? Yeah, so throughout American history, one of the things I learned is that, you know, faith-rooted struggles for justice and for love and equality in our public life have happened and have happened over and again when people come together who are divided by the system as it exists. So that was the abolitionist movement. You know, it was white and black folks together working to end slavery in this country. That was the labor movement of the early 20th century. That was certainly what we usually think of as the civil rights movement. But the civil rights movement was not just about civil rights for African Americans. It certainly was rooted in challenging that systemic racism that was made law in the Jim Crow South. But as Dr. King and others worked to challenge the system that had segregated white from black in order to maintain power for uh, elites, they increasingly realized together and, uh, and were able to publicly communicate that the system they were challenging hurt all poor people. There were poor white folks whose wages had been kept low because first slavery and then Jim Crow sharecropping practices and, and the employment of incarcerated labor and other things was able to keep the you know the labor wages for all workers in the South lower than they would have been if workers could organize together. Those people began to connect with folks in other parts of the country, uh, black folks who had moved to northern cities, Chicano workers from the West Coast who were doing farm work out there, Native and indigenous people who who uh, had their own insights into how systemic racism had shaped the federal government's relationship with their sovereign nations. And so in those relationships, they began in 1967 to build a poor people's campaign that would be an effort to unite their voices and their stories together and go to Washington, D.C., and say to the U.S. government that we didn't only need civil rights and voting rights protections for African Americans in the South. We needed what Dr. King called an economic bill of rights. We needed to to radically shift the economy of this country through through policy that the federal government could enact in order to make this a democracy and an economy that really does work for all people and not just for the people at the top. This was a profound challenge to the system as it existed at the time. And it, I think, had everything to do with why Dr. King was perceived as dangerous and assassinated in the spring of 1968 and why most of the organizations 
that were central to organizing that effort 50 years ago were infiltrated by COINTELPRO and, and really broken up by powered interests in, in this country that wanted to make sure that the poor and marginalized people of a democracy didn't come together and begin to vote together for an agenda that would change the way the system fundamentally works for most people. You just mentioned COINTELPRO, and I just want to make sure my listeners are tracking. That's the counterintelligence program run by the U.S. government against social justice organizations in the 1960s and 70s to infiltrate them and to undermine them. But you're talking about fundamentally an idea of solidarity. So we're used to thinking about animosity and, you know, the war of all against all. But you're talking about those who are in the underclasses, regardless of the fact of if they're migrant workers or African-Americans or the incarcerated, finding that they have common alliances and that they need to work together and stick together in order to work for their common good. And why is the idea of solidarity? I mean, one of our old, one of the old mottos of the United States is e pluribus unum, from many one. So we would think that the idea of solidarity is baked into what we do. But America has been actively working against that kind of solidarity. We mentioned COINTELPRO, you mentioned assassination. Why is it that America is so afraid of the solidarity of the poor? Well, one of Dr. King's, I think, apt descriptions was he said, we have a, a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. You know, the, the United States has always used this language to talk about equality, to talk about solidarity, to talk about a democracy that, you know, makes one out of the many. And yet, the people who have power and control of our government recognize that actually practicing that would demand a radical redistribution of all the resources that have been so consolidated among an elite. And so the people who have had that power have consistently used that power to suppress movements that would transition us toward what the Constitution calls a more perfect union, you know, toward a country that more fully lives out uh, what those founding documents promise to be our aspiration. I, I, I think that is the constant struggle of this country. And a moment of crisis when I think we're we're struggling both politically in uh, uh, and in terms of our uh, all kinds of movements that address you know specific issues that impact communities, whether it's you know Black Lives Matter challenging the way that policing happens in communities, or whether it's the uh, you know the way that um, we have movements to challenge corporations and their abuse of native lands and uh, extractive practices that are destroying the environment. So, you know, whether it's sort of those specific movements or the kind of political conversation we're having about the direction that the country is taking, I think it is a critical moment to recognize the ways that people coming together from different backgrounds impacted by different issues really do have the potential to revive democracy. That's what the Poor People's Campaign was trying to do in 1968, and that's why we relaunched the Poor People's Campaign 50 years later in 2018, in order to bring together the many, many people who recognize that both our political system and our economy doesn't work for many, many people in this country, to come together and to say, if we stand together, and if we lift these, not as left or right issues, not as Republican or Democrat issues, but as moral issues that really do impact our capacity to live into 
our deepest faith traditions and the promises of our Constitution and, and other public agreements, if we list them as moral issues, I think there's a real potential to build a majority that is willing to vote for and work together for a different reality in this country. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about his recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Well, you mentioned the experience of meeting Reverend William Barber and the reignited Poor People's Campaign, and that was a foundational moment for you. But in your book, Revolution of Values, you talk about another moment. And I want to linger on that because I think it, it'll open up for our listeners some of what we're talking about in these struggles. You were having lunch with a businessman, you write in your book, after having preached a sermon, and he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a little book called Acres of Diamonds. And he hands it to you and he says, this is the most important book I've ever read. So for my listeners who may be unfamiliar with that book, Acres of Diamonds, what is it about? And what was he saying to you in that moment by handing you that book? Yeah, this is, a, this is an old pamphlet that was a famous speech on the Chautauqua circuit back when um, I think Chautauqua was sort of the TED Talk of the day, but this is before TV and radio, so this was kind of the main way that uh, ideas spread in the United States. And this famous speech of about the acres of diamonds was really about the potential of capitalism to transform the world and make people wealthy. And it came to be a statement of faith, a sort of prosperity gospel in the early 20th century that became interwoven with much of Christian faith and essentially baptized the corporations as they existed and their model of success. And so it, it became a way of uh, people, Christians, many Christians, confessing, making it a matter of faith, that if someone is successful, then God must be blessing them. If they're making money, that is God's blessing. And the flip side of that, of course, is that if someone is not successful, if a business is not thriving in this country, then that is somehow God's judgment. And so the poor, the working poor, the people, the very people who are often being exploited by corporations and for profit in this country uh, are looked down upon and blamed for their poverty. And uh, this narrative has really turned away from the question about what is our collective responsibility for the goods and services and labor that makes it possible to do business, what is the collective responsibility to educate a workforce, to uh, make sure people are healthy, to make sure you know people have sustainable lives so that they can do the work that, that they do. We've turned away from that collective responsibility to really focus and to focus on, uh, with, a, with a kind of distorted moral narrative on whether or not people succeed in a system and make that a kind of judgment of their character. And I think, I think that's a very powerful narrative in this country, and, and certainly one that, um, that this businessman I was talking about believes really as a matter of faith. I mean, for, for him, it was deeply connected to his Christian faith, and uh, he wanted to make sure that I knew that. Well, one of the things that you do so well in your book, Revolution of Values, is you show how that kind of business-positive reading of the Bible that is tied up in something like this pamphlet, uh, Acres of Diamonds, that it has 
connections to earlier readings of the Bible that also were intended to be a foundation for status quo inequalities. And you see a connection between this kind of business-friendly narrative to a slaveholder-friendly narrative of a century before. Help us to see some of those connections. Yeah, this most recent book, The Revolution of Values, is really about how faith has been used, misused over the last 40 years to justify a particular policy agenda. But the book that I wrote just before this, the Reconstructing the Gospel, is on slaveholder religion, and it's really about the last 400 years in this country. You know, it, it answers the basic question, you know, how in the world did people who called themselves Christian come to believe that it was their Christian duty to own other people and to make sure that those people they claimed to own heard the quote-unquote gospel uh, as they understood it? And as I got into looking into this because of my own story, I I wanted to understand how I had gotten so off track, and that led me to ask how the Southern Baptist Church that I grew up in had gotten so off track. You know, there wouldn't be a Southern Baptist Church if there hadn't been Baptists who refused to give up their slaves in the 19th century. And so that journey led me back to really the 19th century when abolitionists were challenging the practice of slaveholding and the justifications that slaveholder religion developed over and against that abolitionist argument. And as I dug into those arguments, one of the things I realized is that reading the Bible to justify those things that are wrong fundamentally distorts how we understand the Bible. And so uh, the 19th century Christianity, really, that is the white preachers and theologians who were often being paid by slaveholders to, to preach and write what they were, what they were communicating— they communicated a gospel that was very much about the individual's soul, and the soul was something separate from the body. The body could be enslaved, and the soul could be saved and have a sort of eternal destiny that was good news, even as the the reality in this world didn't change. I don't think you read that you read the Bible that way. If, for example, you're an enslaved person in the South, or for that matter, if you were someone who heard Jesus in first century Palestine. Uh, I think that way of saying what the gospel is was shaped by this commitment to uh, justify a system that was so wrong. And to the extent that we haven't unlearned that way of understanding what the gospel is, I think we miss its real power and impact on our lives today. Well, and one of the things that you draw out so well in both the books, Revolution of Values and Reconstructing the Gospel, is the narrative force that was sort of used to try and, and shape the consciousness of the nation. So those who were anti-abolitionist, those who wanted to read the Bible in favor of slavery, they wanted to cast any abolitionist position as an anti-biblical position. Help us to understand the mechanics yeah. of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's an acknowledgement of the power of moral narratives. I quote, in the new book, Robert Louis Dabney, who was one of the most prominent defenders of slaveholder religion, both before and after the Civil War, he continues to preach and defend slaveholder religion even even after uh, the South lost the war and was readmitted to the Union under Reconstruction. He taught at the Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond for a couple decades after the Civil War. 
And he says, uh, in, a co- in a private correspondence before the war, he says about the abolitionists that they had to uh, drive the Bible argument continually and force the abolitionists against the wall. So they acknowledged that, you know, there's a real power when you can lean on Scripture and on moral authority to say that something is wrong, not just that it's uh, it's impractical or that it's not what, you know, you or your party support, but that it's wrong and that it should be wrong for all people. That was the force of the abolitionist argument. And over and against that, the defenders of slaveholder religion recognized that they had to use the Bible. They had to, they had to, in fact, argue that it was a moral good to enslave other people, and that's actually how they developed this argument uh, that sort of radically separates the soul from the body. They say, if those people that we enslave had died in pagan Africa, they would have gone to hell. But because in God's, you know, uh, will, they were brought here to this country, they have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. You see, it's a, it's a positive argument for slavery, an argument that it's actually a good thing for the people enslaved. And that way of distorting faith such that you convince people that the wrong thing they're defending is actually a good, and that it's tied to their God. I think that's where uh, the real power and danger of um, of this distorted moral narrative is. And so I think it's critically important, you know, in in our own time, when people have heard over and again that, you know, I was told, kind of along the lines of the story that we were talking about earlier, I was told that it's actually... Uh, evil to help a poor person, because if you help that person, then you enable them in their sin, right? You allow them to, you know, continue in uh, uh, what, whatever uh, it is that you blame them for, and that that is actually the source of their poverty, and therefore you're enabling their poverty, you're ensuring that they will stay in poverty, you're harming a person if you reach out, if you treat them as a human being, if you establish some connection and try to understand what's really going on in their life. That narrative is uh, uh, incredibly powerful, and it, it leaves people feeling justified, feeling like, for example, when they you know, cast a vote for the uh, candidate for president who's endorsed by the KKK, that they're somehow acting righteously because the person says they're pro-life, right? So there are all kinds of ways like that that a that a moral narrative can be distorted in order to make people feel righteous about doing something that's actually hurting other people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. We're talking about a couple of his recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. 
I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's an author, speaker, and pastor, and he lives in North Carolina. We're talking about a couple of his recent books. One is Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and the other is Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Well, you mentioned along the way in your books the historian John Fee And he has a phrase that I think is worth diving into, this notion of the court evangelical. Help us to understand what Fee is talking about in terms of court evangelicals. Well, John has observed in this current administration, the Trump administration, that there are preachers and religious figures who Trump surrounds himself with and who are frequently willing to uh, go out on, you know, cable TV and otherwise in the public, to defend whatever policy extremism um, uh, he is promoting. I mean, for example, when the family separation policy was uh, in the news last summer, people like Paula White and Robert Jeffress were willing to go on television and to defend separating parents from their children in order to, in in an extremely sort of punitive and... um, harmful way deter uh, immigration by sort of creating a, a sort of vulgar abuse that would uh, you know make, make people not want to come, they were willing to go on television and defend that, not only as necessary, but again, as I was saying earlier, as a, a sort of, as a good, as a sort of defense of the law. And I remember at the time, the uh, Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, used Romans 13 to say, you know, that the uh, governing authorities are established by God, and that if they were established by God, then we have a moral obligation to abide by that law and to punish those who do not abide by the law. Therefore, you know, whatever punishment is being meted out, uh, however extreme it is, it's actually a godly thing. When I heard him do that, I immediately remembered that Romans 13 was one of the favorite passages of those who defended slavery and who defended the Fugitive Slave Act in the uh, 1850s because, of course, the law said that a runaway slave could be returned. And so whatever extreme measures were taken to um, um, snatch people from the North, whether they had, in fact, run away or not, people were taken out of communities and removed and taken back to the South under that law, and it was defended. It was defended by people who used the same passage of Scripture to uh, defend the law. So I think that's the kind of thing that the court evangelicals of this day are willing to do, and I think uh, they're very much in line with, you know, the court prophets who were willing to defend Pharaoh, who were willing to defend the, uh, you know, evil and wicked kings of Israel. Of course, those are court scribes and prophets who who were there with Herod when the Magi come and ask, you know, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? And they tell him based on the scriptures where it is. And Herod, of course, uses their intelligence to slaughter the innocents in Bethlehem. So there is a long tradition of this 
uh, alliance of a distorted religion with abuse of power. And because there is, there's a long tradition of both Jesus and the prophets speaking out against that. And I think those are the traditions that we really need to recover today. Traditions like uh, what we find in Ezekiel 22, where Ezekiel says, your politicians are like ravenous wolves. They chew up the flesh of the poor and the needy, and your priests cover for them. They whitewash their wicked deeds and say uh, that God has ordained it when God hasn't said anything. That's, that's right out of Ezekiel. It's very much like what Jesus says when he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You know, you, you uh, obsess over these small religious matters, but you fail to address the weightier matters of the law, which are love and justice. How is this actually impacting real people? I think that's the question that the prophetic tradition calls us to ask. Well, I'm so fascinated by this, and I, I want to kind of double down on it, because late in your book, Revolution of Values, you say, when we take up this prophetic task today, we must, like Jesus in his own hometown, confront people who read the same Bible and claim to worship the same God that we do. And what we're talking about here is a book that can be read for the purposes of the slaveholder and for the purposes of slave liberation. So we need a way to read that book. We need a key, a filter to put on that book to help it sing out in the kind of voice of solidarity that you're talking about. The technical term for that in biblical studies is a hermeneutic. Uh, That's a fancy word for a way of reading and interpreting. So let me ask you, what should our hermeneutic be? What filter should we put on the Bible so that what jumps out to us is this voice of solidarity with the poor and the helpless and those that have been subjected to violence? That's a great question. Let me just first say that we're living in a society where everyone is aware of the way Christianity in particular in this country has been abused. And so what I think Christians have to acknowledge is that there are lots of people, lots of people who used to be Christian or who never were, frankly, and sort of look look at us and sort of wonder over this. There are lots of people who look at Christian faith in the way it's practiced and say, you know, what you call a good book is actually a bad book. And they say, we want nothing to do with that faith. I think that's clearly why, over the 40 years that we've seen this very intentional distortion of Christian faith to serve a radical right in this country, we've also seen the number of people who refuse to affiliate with any religious tradition double in each of those decades. So I always want to say to Christians, like, this this sort of internal conversation that we're having about how to read the Bible has a very real impact on the way Christians are perceived in the world. But as we talk to one another and acknowledge that, you know, there are different ways to read Scripture, I think the hermeneutic that that Jesus teaches us is a hermeneutic that always asks, who is most vulnerable and what is good news to them? I take it uh, quite seriously that when Jesus goes to his own hometown and, you know, stands up to preach his first sermon at Nazareth, he says, from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It's a very specific claim of the prophetic tradition in order to define Jesus's ministry. And as Jesus teaches and ministers among poor and marginalized people, first in Galilee and then going into Jerusalem, really building in his own way a poor people's campaign that goes to the capital and introduces this new order 
through a you know triumphal procession. You know, the, the, the triumphal procession is not a Easter pageant. You know, I mean, this is an intentional imitation of the way victors in the Roman culture would have entered into a city. You know, Jesus and his movement are proclaiming that a new order, a new politic is real and has come to Jerusalem, and it's here to confront the powers that be. They don't kill him for suggesting that people ought to be nice to one another. They kill Jesus because he has a viable political movement that is challenging the powers in Jerusalem. So I, so I, I read the story from that perspective, and then I ask, well, you know, if we are with those people who are poor and marginalized and who are struggling for whatever reason in the world today, how are the texts of our scripture good news to those folks? And frankly, I think just reading the Bible with people who are struggling is a great opportunity for our eyes to be open. And so in this book, Revolution of Values, what I really do issue by issue is tell a story of someone I've met who's impacted by these you know, political issues that the religious right has tried to define in a particular way and show how we could reread the Bible if we just sat down from the perspective of those people who are most impacted by those issues. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're talking with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about a couple of his recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Well, one of the things that Christians have in their arsenal of spiritual values is the idea of repentance. And we've been talking a lot in this conversation about solidarity, but we've also been talking about the fact that the people that we are struggling with oftentimes are people who are reading the same Bible and worshiping or claiming to worship the same God that we do. It's easy to look across the divide and say, well, I know what they should be repenting of. What should those who are involved in the struggle for solidarity and who want to bring this kind of kingdom of God that you're talking about into our public arena, what should they be focusing on in terms of confession and repentance right now? Well, I've learned over the years about how I carry inside of me assumptions that are based on the position of power, a relative power that that I feel like I hold, that I've been told that I hold because of my, you know, white male body that I live in in this culture. I think about, for example, the um, the work that Ibram Kendi at American University has been doing. And Ibram talks about how in American society that has been so shaped by this history of uh, white supremacy, people are either racist or anti-racist. He says there's no way to be not racist. You you either are advancing uh, policies and ideas that are racist, or you're actively resisting those policies and ideas. And he says, I think this is the important piece of it in terms of what we're talking about here. He says that uh, in the history of this country, there's more than one way to be racist. Right? There have always been segregationists who try to impose white supremacy by saying, you know, because white people, white culture is better, it has to be in power while everything else has to be under it. The other way has been assimilationist, right? The way in which uh, there have always been folks who've argued that black, brown, uh, native folks can be part of the American project, can be part of American society, but only to the extent that they assimilate into white cultural values. So I think what 
I have to always recognize as I'm trying to, you know, unlearn the habits and practices and ideas of the religious right that I was so shaped by is that it's entirely possible in any context to uh, believe that justice for the poor and marginalized means assimilation into white culture and power and values. And um, I think in that way, uh, I and people like me have to always be aware of how our own values and expectations must be redefined as we listen to and experience the world with people who have uh, been on the other side of some of these divides. At one point in your book, Revolution of Values, you quote at length a conversation that you have with Reverend Barber from the Poor People's Campaign there in North Carolina. And there's a a statement that Reverend Barber makes that stuck with me. He said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he said, as a Christian, if I'm really living my Christian walk, it's going to bring me into deep conflict with the culture that I live in. And that's just a given from the way that Reverend Barber looks at the world. That kind of position can be very tiring, and it can be very taxing, not only on one's body, but on one's soul. And I recognize that Reverend Barber has paid some physical cost for this kind of taxing. So my question to you as we're drawing to the close of the conversation is, in the face of what sometimes seems like an unwinnable fight, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What keeps you going? Well, one of the phrases I've learned from uh, people in the Southern Freedom Movement, this uh, is something people began to say to themselves in the 1960s, when for many of these folks, I mean, let's remember, it was not uncommon to receive a call that one of your co-workers had been murdered, you know, in some remote county of Mississippi or Alabama. It was not uncommon for many of these folks, including people who've mentored and taught me, to be arrested and not like when you get arrested in D.C. today, you know, you get some uh, zip ties put on your hands and you have to wait in a, uh, in a holding cell for three or four hours. This, it was not uncommon for them to be arrested by people who, once they got them out of the view of the public, would beat them nearly uh, to death. Uh, those folks began to say to one another in the 1960s, freedom is a constant struggle. And part of what I hear in that is the notion that we have to always be willing to do what you were saying, you know, Reverend Barber says, to to see that our faith is about struggle in the world. But the other side of it is that the constant struggle itself can be freedom. That is, when you develop a contemplative practice, when you develop a way of, of being a person of faith that says, I am with God when I am with those people through whom God has promised to meet me. And I am at prayer when I am singing the songs of those who struggled, when I am engaged in the work and the community that that calls me to. Uh, I think that is its own way of having a deep spirituality that can sustain the struggle for freedom. So freedom is a constant struggle. It means, yes, there's always going to be a, a, a fight to be had, and people, of course, have to find ways to get rest and get sleep and, and you know, let somebody else do the work for a minute while you uh, catch up. But on the other hand, it's also saying that in the struggle itself, there is freedom, that we can find 
what Jesus calls perfect peace and a life that is really life in the midst of living not the ideal that uh, our culture or our expectations might say we're working towards, but rather discovering the God who has met us in the midst of our mess shows us a way of being in the midst of it that is itself a kind of freedom. So that's the freedom that I want to be a part of. Some of my listeners are praying people, and I wonder, as we're coming now to the close of the conversation, is there anything especially that when people offer to pray for you, you ask them to pray for? Yeah, I am constantly aware that I need prayer, like personally, I need prayer to stay deeply connected with the truth that our struggle is grounded in. It's very easy to get distracted. Uh, And I think this is why Jesus spends so much time teaching us about the sort of revolutionary love ethic that's necessary to love your enemies, pray for those who despise you, because it's very easy to get distracted and think that it's about personalities or it's about, you know, getting a particular person or organization out of the way. When as a matter of fact, the struggle that I and others must be engaged in is the transformation of our hearts, of our imagination. And so, yeah, I I ask people to pray for me, pray that I don't lose focus, and pray for the uh, community of people who are so often doing this work and doing it in compelling ways and uh, and are simply overlooked. I, I would ask people to pray that the many, many people who are doing good and important work, not only to live faithful Christian lives, but also to revive genuine democracy in this country, um, pray that their efforts would uh, would see the light of day and would be acknowledged when so often the media culture we live in is just caught up, you know, with the latest tweet or scandal. I think those are my two prayers these days. Well, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, your books, Revolution of Values and Reconstructing the Gospel, I found them to be not only informative, but they were deeply personal, and I had my eyes opened on many of the pages, things that, connections that I had not known to make about the world that we're currently living in and how we got here were revealed to me in the process of your writing. I'm so thankful that you took the time to write these books, but I'm also thankful that you took the time today to talk about them with me and with my audience. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you for reading them. You know, not every interviewer does read the book. I thank you for reading them and for sharing them with your listeners. It's good to talk to you. We've been speaking today with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He's a preacher, moral activist, and popular speaker and writer on religion and politics in America. We've been talking about two of his most recent books, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, and his most recent book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijib. 
Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.